Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1. We are starting, picking back up on verse 18, where we left off. We're going to read through verse 21. One of the reasons I love James is because it is condensed. It's, it's packed full. It's, it's all meat and no fat. It's straight up nutrients for the soul. And the few verses that we're going to read today, verses 18 through 21, are, are, are some of those verses that just seem to explain and clarify and capsulize the Christian life. I think in this text, we're going to see truths about salvation, and we're going to see truths about sanctification. And there's so much to see here. I just want us to dig in. So let's, let's get to it. Let me read the text, verses 18 through 21, and let me pray. James writes, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth, Jesus says in John 17, and he also says, and he prays to you that you would sanctify us by your word, your truth. Do that, Lord, I pray. There are innumerable situations that we face, just the people in this room. And Lord, you have a way, you have a beautiful, mysterious spirit-wrought way of blowing the fog away, of clarifying things, of changing us, of making us more like Jesus in moments when we're gathered together around your word. And it pleases you to bring spiritual life where there's spiritual death. So for any that are in this room that came in unbelieving, dead in their hearts, mastered by sin, tossed to and fro by this world. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of liberty. Lord, do your work among us. May your word not, not return void. Lord, show us beautiful things in your word. And go far beyond my, my so very limited ability to speak. And take your words that your spirit wrote and use them for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, let's work through this text. Verse 18, let me read it again. And in just verse 18, I think we see some beautiful truths about salvation. So let me, let me read verse 18 again. James says, Of his own will, speaking of the Father, of, speaking of God, of his own will, he brought us forth. I think that is the context is that he caused us, he brought us to life. He, he saved us. This is a verse speaking about salvation. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in just this one verse here, I think that, that it tells us quite a bit about, about salvation. Three, three truths about salvation that I want us to see, and then, and then Lord willing, apply to our lives. The first is it tells us the cause of our salvation, the cause of our salvation. The, the first few words of verse 18 there say that, of his own will, he brought us forth. So, so what James is, I think, clearly saying here is that the basis, the reason, the cause for our salvation is simply and merely and having to do with nothing else other than God's free will. If you're a Christian today, James is telling us here, like I think the rest of the Bible is telling us, is that it is completely because of God's own will. He did it. In other words, God is not, this is really good news if you think about it for a while, God is not responding or reacting to anything when he decides to save a person. God is not reacting or responding to anything in a person or in their circumstances, the, the, the amount of righteousness that they have or the lack of righteousness that they have, the amount of sin that they've committed, the depth of sin that they've committed, the good deeds that they've done, God is not responding to anything or reacting to anything when he decides to save a person. The basis for you, the fact that you know Jesus and have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of a son whom he loves is not because of anything in you, but is simply, freely, merely, only because of God's will. Now this is really, really good news. This is really, really good news. It's good news on both sides of the ditch. Because we tend to fall off on either side on this. It's good news because some of us are prone to think, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. God should, you know, he seems like a, a reasonable decision that he would choose me because of all these things that I kind of have. Well, that's a, that's a terrible ditch to fall into. Because if you, if you sort of examine that latent mentality, which, by the way, is the dominant mentality of man, it's a dominant mentality of your average person that you would find on the street is a kind of salvation by merits, a salvation by good intentions. And, and James is saying here that, that that's not the reason for your salvation because if you examine it, that then how good is good enough? When is enough righteousness enough? When is that the basis for God actually bringing us forth into salvation? And the answer is there's nothing that we can do. There's no righteousness that we can bring in and of ourselves. That's one ditch we can fall into. The other ditch that we can fall into is a kind of, a kind of hopelessness, a self-loathing and thinking, and this is probably many people in this room, some people in this room at least, thinking that, my, I, you don't know what I've done. 
I have done this, and there's no way that God can save a person like me. But friends, the great truth is that he's not saving you because you haven't done this and this and that, and you have, oh, you've done so many bad things, now I can't save you. He's saving you, according to James, because of his own will. He saves, Hebrews 7 says, to the uttermost. So anybody that might be prone to believe the lie that you've done something too bad in order for God to save, you are making an idol out of your sin and you are nursing your guilt and you're holding it up as something even more powerful than the Lord's will. Friend, don't, don't do that. It's, 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 abs- it's anti-biblical. That's the cause of salvation is God's free grace. Why is this so important? Because if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, there, there's not, you, you are so, so radically secure because the basis for your salvation was nothing in you. Therefore, he's not going to give up on you because of anything in you. We, we could spend, we could spend, not 21 years, but we could spend some time just thinking about that. That was good. I'm still giggling about that. That tells us the cause. Two, it tells us the means of our salvation. The means. He says he brought us forth of his own will. He brought us forth how? By, by, through, through the agency of the word of truth. Now, what is the word of truth? Well, I, I, that's a phrase that I think we think in, most instinctively on the surface is the word of God, the word of truth, and certainly that is. Specifically, when the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uses the phrase the word of truth, it's zeroing in on the content of the gospel itself. So let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. This is Paul. He says, in him, you also, Ephesians 1, 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So here Paul tells us a little bit more clearly what the word of truth is. Certainly it's the Bible, but specifically it's the message of the Bible that's pointing directly to the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Colossians 1, verses 5 through 6, Paul says something very similar. He says he's commending the Colossians because of their faith. And he says, because of the hope laid up in heaven for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, meaning the word of truth, the gospel, and understood the grace of God in truth. So how, how are, what's the cause? It's God's will. How does he bring us forth by, by, into this new birth? It's through his word, the gospel. It's by the good news that this Bible is proclaiming. How it, that good news then hits our heart and it makes us alive. It regenerates us. So what is the gospel? It's this, this, the gospel is a, a word that means a proclamation. It's, it's news. It is the good news of what God has done to make people right with himself. And what has God done to make people right with himself? He hasn't just waved a wand and said, I'm going to save these people. What he has done is he has created a world that he has allowed to fall 
All of us have fallen into sin and are separated from God because of our sin, rightly under God's wrath. We deserve, by our nature, God's wrath. That's the bad news of sin. And now the good news of of the gospel comes, and God sends his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself becomes flesh, just as Springer read for us this morning from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It's the whole reason we make such a big deal about, about the Advent season, about Christmas, because we are celebrating the, the stage of the gospel where God himself, God the Son, Jesus, becomes a man. He takes on flesh. And where all of us have disobeyed God, Jesus completely obeys God. And he lays down his life. Now, this is a mystery that we can't fully understand, but we can see in the scriptures and believe and behold, is that Jesus is completely, truly, fully God and always has been. Not created, no beginning, no end. The second person of the Trinity, there's a mystery in itself, the the triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, we can't fully understand that, but we can see it in scriptures and we can behold it and believe it. And so this Godhead, this one God, three persons, the second person of this Godhead comes and becomes a man. Now, how does that, that's a mystery. God, fully God, becomes fully man. And so Jesus becomes a a person just like us, and, and he is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, then lays down his life, God the Son, on the cross as a sacrifice to bear the punishment of God the Father for his people. And Jesus, because he's not just a good man, but an infinitely holy God the Son has enough righteousness to atone for and absorb all the wrath of all of God for all the sin of all of his people. And on the cross, Jesus takes the wrath of God. He bears it. He removes it. He extinguishes it. And he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. He's defeated. He's the victor. He's the substitute. He's the sacrifice. That's what Jesus is on the cross and in his resurrection. And now he commands all of us to repent. That's the good news of the gospel, to turn from trusting in ourselves and to put our faith and our hope in God and what he has done through his son Jesus to atone for, to reconcile us, to bring us back to him through his son's work and not our own. That's the good news of the gospel. And so what he says here is, listen, think about James's logic. He's saying that based on God's free will, because of God's gracious decision, your heart is dead in sin. That's the way you're born. Every one of us, we're dead, separated from God. He causes the means, so the cause is his free will. The means, God's freedom, God's will. The means then is the gospel. His sin, is, his, his, his judgment is against our sin. How is God going to make us alive and reconcile us to himself because we're sinful and he's holy? And what James is saying here is the means is the gospel, the word of truth. Jesus comes, 
lives a perfect life, dies, conquers sin, death in the grave, grave, absorbs God's wrath, and now God causes that good news to hit our dead hearts. This is how God saves people. By causing, by bringing the good news of what Jesus has done to bear on their hearts. It's news that brings with it life. It's life-giving news. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not you deciding to improve yourself in 2020. It's not you calculating your relative morality compared to other people and determining to do better. Salvation is out of God's own free will, we're dead in our sins. He brings the proclamation of what his son has done to bear on a dead heart, and he makes that dead heart alive. That's the means. That's, that's the way God saves you. You're totally passive. You're totally passive. Just like Springer read from us in John chapter 1. Where we are born again, not of the will of man, but of the will of God, right? I got a birthday coming up, January, and I was born in 1971. January 13th, 1971. I'll be 49, coming up on a big fitty, coming up on it. I, I, I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too, um, too detailed here, but you realize that I was completely passive in my birth, right? I didn't, have any, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't have anything to do with my conception. I didn't have any, it happened to me. And that's what salvation is, friends. It's a gift. It happens to us. And now, what is he saying? He's saying that the, the third thing that, that, that he teaches us about salvation is not only the cause, God's own will, not only the means, the gospel that transforms us, makes us alive, it hits you, it brings you to life. Now the purpose, he says, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So why has God of his own will brought you forth by his word so that you would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures? Now, that's not language we ordinarily use kind of in our vernacular in modern English in 21st century. So what is James saying when he says that the reason God of his own will has caused the gospel to bring life to your soul so that you would have faith and repentance and trust in Jesus is so that you, we, would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What this means is it tells us about the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation. First fruits biblically is this concept of an offering of the best to the Lord. So we read about it in the Old Testament numerous times, but specifically, let me just read to you in Proverbs chapter 3, this admonition from, from Proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And so there's this concept all the way through the Old Testament of how we, people, God's people, are to give the first fruits of their increase, their wealth, whatever. It's this concept of giving, even the tithe, giving to it. But here what James is saying is that our very lives 
our very lives are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what he's saying is, is that your life, the whole reason that you have been saved is that out of all of humanity, out of all of his creatures, God saved you to give to himself that your life has been saved, brought to life by his word so that your whole life would be a kind of offering to the Lord. Do you see that? We are to be an offering, our time, our, our energy, our, all of it are the Lord's. We cannot do with them as we please, but only what makes for the Lord's glory. We are not acting as first fruits when we seek our own things. We cannot live our own, to, for our own glory and for our own means. To be a first fruit means that our lives, every part of them, is to be handed over to God, and He's the owner. And we have no rights over ourselves. So this, this, this is verse 18. Do you see how comprehensive just one verse can be? It tells, us about, it tells us about the cause of salvation, the means of salvation, and the purpose of salvation. Just one little application question or thing to think about before we move on to verse 19 and 20. If you're a believer, God has saved you not so that he would be there for you. Certainly he's there for us. He, he helps us as a father. There's all sorts of things in the Bible that tell us about how God attends to the needs of his people, all of that. But primarily, we are the Lord's. We're the Lord's. It's a simple, it's a simple thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of mindset. What, whatever you have, whatever you don't have, whatever you're going through, whatever, whatever you're facing, God in his providence has brought it about so that your life would be a kind of first fruit, an offering to him. Everything that you have, your house, your money, your talents, your time, your marriage, your singleness, your gifts, everything is the Lord's. And that's why he saved you, to bring glory to himself through your life, to shine the light on his beauty through your redemption. That's a beautiful truth. Okay, verses 19 and 20 then just are a kind of transition. Verses 19 and 20, strangely, I think are, are, are interestingly, not strangely, but interestingly, don't really fit in the context of verses 18 and 21. I think 18 and 21, which we'll read in a second, are about the Word of God. And verses 19 through 20 are a kind of insertion of this topic of our tongues and anger. And much ink has been spilt as to where and why James would include verses 19 and 20 in this particular portion of the first chapter and not somewhere else. It's a kind of, almost like a kind of parentheses. It's like a, an, an interruption of his flow of thought about the word of truth. And then in verse 21, the implanted word. I think what's going on is that James is probably introducing a topic, our tongues, our speech, that he's going to come to later on. And he introduces it here as a kind of application of what the Christian life should look like, which is the rest of the first chapter. I don't know the answer to that question, but here's the good news. We don't have to really think about it that much because we know that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible and the Holy Spirit has purposes and the Holy Spirit is always right. So whatever the connection 
Uh, it's in there for a reason, and we're definitely going to pick up on this theme when we get to chapter 3, and we all walk out of the service on those Sundays when we look at chapter 3 when he talks about tongue with uh, humility and our tail between our legs because the Holy Spirit will most certainly chasten us when we get into chapter 3. But listen to verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Ah, oh, this is tough for a person who talks a lot for a living. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I just wrote down some thoughts here, and then we're going to get to verse 21. Just some thoughts, because we're going to really explore this theme in James chapter 3 much more thoroughly. This idea of being quick to hear and slow to speak. We are an interrupting culture. Think about how often we interrupt each other when we talk. In fact, this week, just, just maybe if you're disciplined enough, just think about how often, just try and maybe just take a little tally of how often you interrupt people and how often you are interrupted. It's, it's amazing when you, when you really pay attention to it. This, this really shouldn't surprise us. We, we have been discipled by 24-hour news shows that feed off of guests verbally sparring with one another. These 24-hour news cycle shows and the, the, the digital age that we live in demands, demands constant quick takes about the day's latest events that are still developing, but we need people to have opinions about them now. Twitter and Facebook have produced in all of us even, just regular people out there without a platform on some network. The, these digital media platforms have produced in just average folks like us a sense that it is our fundamental right to offer our opinion about things, most of which we have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, no idea. No, we're, we're, we're a million miles removed from the situation but we know a guy who knows a guy who said this, and so we give our, our opinion on this. And we, we, we are a culture that values quickness to speak rather than quickness to hear. And I'm not so much concerned about what it has done to us culturally, although that's certainly, that's certainly a big deal. But in this instance, I'm, I'm more concerned with what it does to us relationally on a kind of ground level. We, we are discipled by an interrupting proud culture. And I thought deeply about why would, why would James here, what's the connection between being quick to hear, slow to speak, and then he brings up this, this topic of anger. He says, be slow to speak, slow to anger, verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And as I thought about it, I thought about it in my own life, that there is this connection between me wanting to get my point of view across with people that I'm talking to, whether it be my family or other folks that I love, and this kind of latent anger that rests within me. Listen to me. This is the way I want it to go. No opposition. Do what I say. And, and that's a kind of quickness to speak. Speech is a kind of expression, a kind of socially acceptable, more acceptable version of anger. Listen to me. You shut up. 
I'm talking now. James is pointing us below our tongues, I think, to our hearts, to this latent anger, this kind of self-righteousness, this sort of, I, I'm right, you're wrong. And he's saying that type of self-righteousness is going in 180 degrees in the opposite direction of the righteousness of God. And that type of anger does not produce the righteousness of God. How are, how are you doing with this? How, how are you doing with your tongue? How are you doing with listening? How are you doing with latent anger? More on that when we get to chapter 3. He transitions back now to, to the Word of God. Verse 21, and this will show us some truths about sanctification. He says, Therefore, in light of what we've just said, I think in verse 18, there, because the Word has saved you, you, you want to fight this anger. Verse 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Verse 21 is a, it's just a magnificent sentence about sanctification. I think we see, see some truths about sanctification. First, the first truth that I think we see in this is that it is active. Sanctification is an active thing that we must do. It's made up of daily decisions. It's made up of a million daily decisions. The, the, the word there, put away, is this idea that's actually all throughout the New Testament. Literally, the word means a kind of removing of clothes, taking off of clothes. And the, the imagery is of, of going to the closet and, and taking off one shirt or, or putting on another. That's the, the way this word is used in the, the New Testament. Literally, taking something off, taking off a coat, taking off a shirt, stripping off this old way. And, and there's lots that we can say about sanctification. There's so many things I think we think about all the time. But I don't want to minimize that if you're a Christian, think about what we've just said out of verse 18 about sanctification. If you're a Christian, God has made you, you were dead in your sins. Think about your pre-conversion life. Listen to this now. Just follow logically. You're dead in your sins. That's what it means to be an unbeliever. The Bible says striking things about an unregenerate, an unborn again, an unbelieving pre-conversion heart. It says that it's dead. It says that that dead heart is unable to obey God in any saving way. That's Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. We're unable to obey God. Ephesians 2 says that we're being dragged around by the prince of the power of the air. We are, we are, we are just like being dragged around by a leash by our master, which is the devil, and our flesh, which reigns over us. That's a description of the pre-converted man. But when God saves us, he takes out our old heart and he gives us a new heart. We have a new heart with new affections. And now where we were unable to obey God, we are now unable to obey God. Now that new heart, it's, a, it's an infant heart. It's not a fully developed, fully sanctified heart. It's an infant heart. But it is now, even in its, its newness, even in its infancy, even after spiritual birth, it's now able to make a decision to obey God. And what the point I think I want to make here is that 
much of Christian life is just realizing that we have a decision to make and we are now enabled to make that decision. Where, where we've been drug away for years, and this is the difficult part of sanctification. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. For years, we were dead in our sins. And we were drug away just by our lust, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're so used to giving in, to, to deciding, because our hearts were dead, to deciding to disobey the Lord. Now salvation comes. We've been made new. Now, half of the battle is realizing that you don't have to go down that road anymore. You can make a decision. Your heart is new. You're alive now. You're not as strong as you're going to be. You're maybe not as strong as you should be. But Christ is in you. And you can, you can take off that shirt. You can not go down that way. You can not make that call. You can not do that thing. You can not go down that pathway. And, and it's sanctification in verse 21 at its core is just a decision that a Christian makes daily a thousand times. To put, to put away. And don't, man, there's, there's so many things I can say around that. Don't, don't we need help doing that? Come on. That's not a solo flight, man. That's a bumpy road. We can make that decision. We put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And that word rampant is, is interesting to me. It's just it's like it's all over, right? It, it's, it's everywhere. It's like the, the little pop-up game at the, the midwinter fair. You know, you're just hitting the, the thing and something else pops up that sins everywhere. And we have a decision to avoid it, to say no to it. So, so sanctification is, is active. It's something that we must do. And we can do it if we're born again because we have a new heart that is now enabled. But now it's also... It's passive as well. It's both active and passive. That's the second thing that I think this text tells us about sanctification. It's passive. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's something you do. It's active. And receive, passively receive with meekness the implanted word. So there's this, there's this passive nature that is also present in, in sanctification. We receive the word. Now, there's active action in receiving the word, but when we receive the word, the implanted word, it works on us even without our own activity. It does something in us. And James is saying here that this word of God is planted in us. It's, it's in our hearts and it takes root in us. And this is the promise of what the Bible tells us about being a believer and what God does in the lives and hearts of his believers. Let me, let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the promise of salvation and the promise of the new covenant. Listen to this. For this is the covenant that I will make with them of the house of Israel after those days. And when he talks about Israel in this sense, he's speaking about the new covenant. He's not just talking about ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, like an ethnic Jew. I think he's talking also about spiritual Israel, the, the people of God in the New Testament, the believers in Jesus, both ethnic Jews and whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. This is the new covenant that I'm going to gather true Israel to myself. So he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of God, the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here's what happens. When you're, when you're a Christian, God not only saves you, he gives you this heart that is now enabled to fight sin, maybe not perfectly, but it's a decision we must make. But he also takes this word, this implanted word, and he, as he says here, implants it. He puts it on us. He gives us a, an alertness. He opens our ears. He, he puts his way. The Holy Spirit now takes residence in our life. And with the Spirit comes the Word. And now the truth of God, even though it may be just a grain, it's in us. It's in us. You hear the Word. It sticks in you. God does that in the life of a Christian. And then he says about this word, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I love this passage. It's so encouraging. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you heard the gospel, God made you alive, and then you heard the teaching of the word of God, which you heard from us. That's like the context of what Paul is saying. You Thessalonians were dead in your sins. I planted this church, Paul is saying. You heard the gospel. You heard the teaching of the scriptures. You heard it from us. He says, you accepted it. You received it meekly, as we see in James, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Listen to then what he says about this word of God that they received, it's implanted, which is at work in you believers. So friends, that's why it's so important to come, and that's why we preach the Bible and not my opinion. That's why we, we want to center on the scriptures. That's why reading the Bible is so important, because it has a kind of transformative effect. It's so powerful that it works even when we're not aware of it working. I think this is somewhat of what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 4. Let me read Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 27 now. To be clear, I think Jesus is speaking broader here. He's speaking about the kingdom of God and the way the rule and the reign of God expands throughout the earth. These parables of the kingdom that he says in Mark and in Matthew chapter 13, here in Mark chapter 4. And although he's speaking primarily about this rule and reign of the kingdom of God globally, universally, I think the principle that Jesus is speaking of here in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, applies also on a kind of individual level about the rule and reign in the heart of an individual believer through the word of God being planted in their lives. This is what Jesus says, verse 26 of Mark 4. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So I take that, and this application that I'm using for this verse is that the, the Word of God hits you. You hear the gospel, it regenerates you, it makes you alive. And now it's in you, the Word is on you, it doesn't go away, it's implanted in you. Even if it's just a little bit, God's with you, He's in you. He's, he's stamped His Word, He's given you a new heart, and He's written His law on your heart. Your conscience now is concerned about things that he's concerned about. You're convicted. That's why, that's why you sometimes are more miserable right after you come to Christ than you were before because now your heart's alive. And you, God's word is written on your heart as a kind of navigator for you and you're working those things out. But here's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The word hits our heart. Verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and it grows, and he knows not how. The word works on our hearts. The implanted word of God works on our hearts. 
regardless of whether we realize it or not. In fact, most often we don't. So here's just a, here's a clear application. If that's the case, shouldn't we, shouldn't we put ourselves, shouldn't we just want to take in more of God's word? Shouldn't we just, just do whatever we can to get in the way, so to speak, of God's word? My wife and children have a cat. And this little cat, strangely, for some reason, has taken a liking to me. And this cat, when I walk down the hallway, it's like the cat thinks she's a, like a, a, a shepherd dog that is like hurting me. Like she's trying to, so she will run down the hallway and cut right in front of me and throw herself down on the ground. And she will get in the way. Wouldn't it be a shame if I accidentally stepped on that cat one day? <laughs> what, a, what a terrible thing that would be. But, but this, this cat just is constantly putting herself in my way. She's, getting in, she's putting herself in my path so that I will pet her. I think that when I see this, this, my wife and children's cat do this, I, I think about like the Christian, part of the battle of the Christian life is just exposing yourself, getting yourself in the pathway of God's truth. That's why gathering together is so important, because you're going to hear the word of God. That's why gathering together with other Christians and talking about something deeper than just you know, the weather and sports and stuff is so important because we're putting ourselves in the pathway of the truth of God that, that's at work in us. That's why reading the Bible for yourself is, is so important because we're putting ourselves in the pathway. We're, we're jumping in front of and laying down, in a sense, in front of the Word of God. And we're just saying, speak, speak, speak. And what's happening in sanctification is that even though that's an active decision that we must make to put ourselves in, in under the fountain of the word, when we do that, that's the active part. The passive part is, is it works. It does stuff. It changes us. And we go to sleep and we don't even know how it does, but we wake up. And over the course of weeks and months and years, there's a kind of stability, a kind of harvest, a kind of, of, kind of growth in the person's life that does that often. That's just how God works. It doesn't just happen automatically. It's something, it's a decision, it's an active decision that we make to put ourselves in the way of the flow of the Word of God. Listen to this, um, these words from, I read this on the Desiring God website, and it was a, a, a little blog post, an admonition written to women by a woman, but it has broad application. It's not, even though the quote here that I'm about to read will be to women, it's, 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 it's a wonderful truth that applies to, to everybody. And the title of this blog post, if you want to look it up and read it later, is Lies That Keep Women From the Word. Lies That Keep Women From the Word, from the Desiring God website, written by a, a lady named Rachel Jankovich, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Listen to, the, listen to what she says here. This is so true. She says, Many Christian women of course, I'm inserting in that, men, do without the word of God. 
we have set our standards so unbiblically high for the moments in which we will read the Bible that we have devalued the word itself. Now, let's stop. let me just stop there. I think there's a lot of truth to that sentence. We have romanticized the simplicity of taking in God's word. It's just, everything's got to be perfect, you know, just the, the kids got to be quiet, everybody's got to be taking a nap, and I got to feel like it. Now, we have set, let me read that sentence again, we have set our standards so unbiblically high for the moments in which we will read the Bible that we have devalued the word itself. The value of the Bible is not in the accessories we bring to it. It is not in study guides and long talks with friends. Although I'm all for good, solid study guides and long talks with friends. The nourishment of the word is not found in our organization or in our self-discipline or in, in our achievement of any kind. The word has priceless value even without us. And we are invited to partake of it all the time. And she goes on to just give real practical steps on just, hey, you know, we, if we're hungry, we'll just have a roll of snacker, uh, crackers in our sleeve of crackers in our you know, purse. If, uh, she's talking to women, obviously. Or you'll just have an apple that you're carrying around. You just, you're eating. You're constantly feeding yourself physically. And she's commending. Certainly, she's not saying that there aren't wonderful times that we plan, but she's commending a kind of word-tethered, word-centric posture of the Christian where we're taking in God's word, where we're reading it. Friends, it's not always going to be awesome. Bells aren't always going to go off. Goosebumps aren't always going to be there. But we take in God's word slowly but surely, and we make it a habit, and we forget a couple days, and we give ourselves grace, and we get back on the horse, and we go, and we go, and we fight, and we make a daily decision to take off that shirt and put on this new one. And what happens slowly over time, God meets us there and changes us. That's the way the Christian life works. It's slow. It's rugged. It's sometimes imperceptible. It's hard. It's exhausting. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one steps back. But it's, that's the way God works. It's not romantic. It's not Instagrammable. It's not shareable. It, there's no filter on it. It's hard. It's slow. It's discouraging. And that's the way God grows his people, through the implanted word in us that changes us. And then finally, the third truth we see very quickly, so it's active, it's passive about sanctification, and it's, it's progressive. It's never complete in this life. Look, look at the tense. I'll read 21 again. I just want you to notice the tense of the second part of the sentence. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, it's the active part. And receive with meekness the implanted word of God. It's going to be at work in you. That's the passive part. Which is able to save your souls. So I think the context here is not speaking about our initial conversion, although certainly that's what the word does. Verse 18, he brings the word to bear on our hearts and it saves us. But I think in context here, and we see this in other parts of the Bible, that sanctification is a process. Let me read to you 
Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in a sense, we are already saved and we shall be saved. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So there's this progressive nature. We're saved now and we're going to be finally and fully saved on that day. Why do I bring up this little nuance in, the, in even the tense of this language? Because I just want to make the point that I think I've made even prior to this is that salvation is a process. It's hard. It can be discouraging. You are not all that you will be. That's part of the Christian life. And I want to say to somebody struggling with fighting habitual sin, hang in there. Hang in there. Take God's side against your sin. The implanted word of God is at work in you, even if you don't perceive it. Put yourself in the pathway of God's word. To the person who feels like God is distant, and he's not there, and he's not listening to you, and he feels a million miles away. Friends, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. God has purposes in the slow pace of this fight that we find ourselves in. And he will finish the good work that he has begun in you. Be sure of that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, take this word, even that we've looked at today, and use it, I pray, to do the very things that it said it would do. That it would be implanted in our hearts, and that it would change us and make us more like Jesus. And for any friends that are in this room that don't yet know you, Lord, free them up to see the beautiful truth of the gospel that you save by your own will. It delight, you, you are rich in mercy. It delights you to save people. So Lord, by the word of truth, cause some dead heart to be made alive today and then reorient all of their affections, all of their desires to see that they are meant to be a first fruit given back to you for your glory. Take this word and make it more than just some intellectual thing that we think about today or even react to emotionally. And use even these words that we've read today and plant them on our soul and weeks from now, years from now, Cause this word to bear fruit in our lives.